Would you join me please in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. It's our scripture reading, sermon text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Now, we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians since early August. We'll continue this study through October. And we come to this text... And I want to put this text, what it's about, under two headings, simple to follow. They're in the sermon title. This text is about the will of God and about the God of will, meaning our own authority. The will of God contrasted to the God of will. Now, we, we see the term will of God there in verse 3. Looking again at verse 3, this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We don't see or we don't pick up on it uh, right away, the God of will, which is articulated in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The disregarding conveys willfulness. It's not accidental. It's not negligence that disregards, but willfulness. And particularly in sexuality, human beings have a long track record of disregarding, resisting God when it comes to sexuality. And in certain cultures, our own being chief among them, sexuality has become kind of a God itself. In our cultural setting, sexuality has become almost sacred, sexual liberation, a kind of gospel of personal authority. You can do and be sexually whatever you want. And many indulge that, what they want, with a kind of religious fervor. Two things here for us to mind from this text, the will of God and then the God of will. The sermon will be about developing both ideas, applying this to us. By God of will, again, I mean personal authority when we refuse to be broken by the Spirit of God. But first, I want us to consider the will of God, as we have it here in verse 3 and following. Because of our natural sinfulness, we can regard the will of God and His authority behind it as something of an inconvenient truth. Now, there's probably not a person in the room who wouldn't say, this is true, yes, what God reveals is truth. But we can, in our sinfulness, find it to be an inconvenient truth 
particularly when we're going through temptation, living as we do in the land of plenty when it comes to temptation. Our cultural situation is a sexual free-for-all, and we're encouraged to plunge in ourselves. So much so that to not do so is to be thought odd. In fact, uh, Peter says this over in 1 Peter 4, There's a place in 1 Peter 4 where Peter says, if you don't plunge in to where everyone else is violating the will of God, they think you strange. And yet from this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, and also 1 Peter 4 for that matter, all through scripture what we see is that you're going to be judged one way or the other. Either judged by the crowd for not going along with them in sexual immorality, or judged by God for doing so. He says in verse 6, the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. That's verse 6. Now, because judgment language often accompanies instruction like this in the Bible, we get heavy-handed about God's will. You know, this is God's will and you will like it. (laughs) We can be quite moralizing when it comes to God's will. Through the years, uh, I've counseled enough demoralized Christians who feel defeated in this area and others, but particularly in this area, feel like they cannot keep to God's will. And reality is, when you begin to unpack with them how they got to believing they can't do it, is what they can't keep up with, actually, is the appearance of flawless obedience. They need freedom from being performative. But because of our sinfulness, I think honesty compels us to admit when we come to a passage like this, we always find God's will. Because of our sinfulness, we always find God's will, even when articulated clearly and cleanly in a passage like this one, as it is here in verse 3, this is the will of God for you. We always find this challenging to honor. I'm not giving us an excuse to go slack uh, on this, Uh, not at all. This or any other moral imperative we're responsible to in Christ. But if we do God's will, as it's articulated here for us, if we keep ourselves from sexual immorality, it's not ourselves that we ought to credit for that. We respond, but it's the work of God's Spirit in and for us. We credit without a Holy Spirit of God, none of us obey God. None of us have any desire to, none of us have any draw to, and none of us do. But the will of God, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Impossible for sinners, that is for people who are left in their sin without redemption, it's impossible to do the will of God. But it's not easy for saints either, those who've had an encounter with Jesus and been Uh, being transformed by his grace. It's not easy for saints because we still feel the tug. We still feel the drive of our sin nature. Even though our sin debt is paid in full, our sin guilt covered in full by the life and death and resurrection of God the Son and then God the Spirit we know works in us to keep to the will of God. Even to collapse on it when we've uh, gone through temptation. Maybe we've, you know, resisted temptation and barely escaped, or maybe we gave in. We run back to God 
And sometimes it feels like temptation chases us around relentlessly, but we run back to God to collapse there on his grace, but also on his will. Winded and maybe bloodied in consequences we're suffering. But due to God's spirit working in us, we know who to run to when we fall. Because what we understand from the whole counsel of God is that the God who avenges is also for us in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing to know. Why is this the will of God for us? You ever thought about it beyond just a, you know, a surfacey kind of uh, uh, appeal? Why is this the will of God for us? Your sanctification, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification, looking at that word there in verse 3, it, it basically is what being called to holiness means. The, the idea of sanctification is to be set apart. Now, a lot of you know this, but if you don't know it, it's okay. There are words in scriptures that maybe sound familiar, but we if pressed, I wouldn't necessarily know how to give you a definition, but that's what sanctification is really getting at. We've been set apart. We've been taken out of the mass of humanity as one beloved of God, given the inheritance of, of Christ himself, and here we are, not just in a church, but here we are in Christ if we've been redeemed by him, and in being redeemed by him, we are set apart. And so the point at which we meet him all the way to the end of our earthly life is sanctification, living out our set-apartness, recognizing we've been called to holiness. Remember from last Sunday, I said hypocrisy is the opposite of holiness. We were talking last week, end of chapter 3, and I contrasted that, you know, what's the opposite of holiness? It is hypocrisy. Well, sanctification here in verse 3 has in view our calling to belong to God, body and soul. Not just soul, but body also. Body includes sexuality. Hypocrisy is a, it's a bodily function, if you will. But let me give you some encouragement here. I read a book a couple years ago uh, entitled Addicted to Lust. It's by uh, Samuel Perry. He's a professor in Oklahoma, and he's a sociologist. And so his book, this was my minor in college, so, you know, I've always had sort of this uh, interest in sociology. His particular book, Addicted to Lust, is uh, a compilation of results, uh, data, a statistical study uh, made of uh, Protestant Christians and pornography. So pornography in the lives of Protestant Christians. And Professor Perry provides statistical evidence that while pornography has gone mainstream, and we all know that, Christians are not more likely to access it than others. However, we are more likely to label ourselves addicted to pornography if we access it and thereby convince ourselves we have a bigger problem within the church than we actually do. In other words, many Christians here among us in the room and elsewhere throughout the Christian world are living out this passage, verse 4, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, verse 5, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who don't know God. 
Many Christians, most Christians are doing this. Be encouraged. You don't get a lot of encouragement from sermons that deal with sexual immorality, do you? No, you get beat up because the assumption is the church is just as bad in this as the world is. But that really can't be true. It's like when people say, you know, Christian marriages end at the same rate as non-Christian. That's just simply false. Now, we want to believe it because we have this pre-commitment to believing the worst about ourselves. We think that's what Christianity means. It doesn't. We have a prior commitment to believing Sexual immorality in general, pornography in particular, is the biggest threat to sanctification going. It's the biggest threat to the moral order of the church, to our calling to live in holiness more than anything else. We've had speakers clobber this into us for years. The problem is it's not true. (laughs) If the Spirit of God is actually working in His people, and we believe it is, then it's not true that most Christians are off in the weeds on this. His work is effective. Now, in fact, the author of Addicted to Lust says Christians want to argue with his findings because we have this prior commitment to believing the church is as dirty as the world when it comes to sexual ethics. It's just not. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's not like this isn't a problem for many. It is a deep, distressing problem. Please don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. I'm not saying to you, nor is the sociologist I'm quoting, uh, saying that pornography in particular and the larger sexual immorality it feeds is not a problem for Christians and society at large. Men and women both, we know that it is. Nothing good comes from it. What's being said is that Christians tend to, Christians tend to extrapolate and amplify and worsen how much of a problem it actually is when we should expect to find this is less of a problem among Christians than others. That should follow. This is good news. And it does because the Spirit of God is working within us. It does because we already understand something that Those who don't know Christ uh, don't fully understand. We understand by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, that sexual immorality is condemned behavior. Uh, For us, it would be like moving into a a condemned house, knowing that the house is condemned. Who does that? Eventually, the condemned house will collapse. It will collapse in sections or maybe all at once. We know it. We know condemned houses don't keep out the bugs and the rats and whatever else the rain the chill the heat there's no power servicing a house like that why would we move into a place like that verse one brothers we ask and urge you in the lord jesus verse one that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please god just as you are doing that you do so more and more There are Christians who fall into sexual immorality. There are Christians who don't fall into it themselves, but they do indirectly in that they come to justify it for others. And they find those Christians who fall into it, those Christians who justify sexual immorality for others, there are those Christians out there writing and talking in places and they want to give the impression that God's okay with our sexual immorality. Those Christians, the will of God matters less and less to them. They don't know the power of God in their walk with God. 
Would that we all control our body in holiness and honor, as verse 4 puts it, but this is our difference between us and the world. The scandals notwithstanding, the confessions of sexual immorality among evangelical Christians, yes, we take that into account, but we should find Christians, men and women, conducting ourselves honorably, and we do find that. It doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing temptation. But experiencing temptation and giving into it are not the same thing. Most of the sermons I've heard on this really do resort to shame and guilting people as a motivation and, and, and holding uh, a judgment uh, over us in a, in a way that's uh, condemning, that, that doesn't take into account the cross. Most of the sermons I've heard on this assume we're all in the gutter. This is the greatest threat to the church. Pornography is eating our lunch. But that is an assumption, and it's based upon our willingness to already believe the worst about ourselves. Most of us take these warnings seriously. This is good news. Most of us look at a passage like this, and we say, this is what I want to do. I didn't before I knew Christ, but now knowing Christ, I do. And yet, we understand what the tension is. We live inside a sexual free-for-all culture that is relentless in its worship of the body. And we're around it all the time. Sexual morality is seductive to bodies, but it's also seductive to souls. Sexual morality goes godlike, and so now we turn to our second heading, the God of will, small g, God. That is personal authority, uh, deifying our own autonomy. I know what the Word of God says, I know what the Spirit of God wants, but I will do what I want. I know this is a problem, but I'm not going to work on it. I'm going to roll over in it and give myself to it because uh, I just can't beat it. When we go looking in sexual morality for something that we can only get from a Savior, that partner in sin, real or online, can never be your Savior. Not even your spouse can be your savior. I tell uh, couples that I do premarital counseling with, one of the things we talk about in the four or five sessions that we end up talking together, one of the things I, I ask them to, to just tuck away and understand is that your spouse will never be your savior. As much as you love one another and as good as your relationship hopefully will be. And I, I've married uh, well above, I had an old Tennessee punter one time tell me, you outpunted your coverage when he met Lynn. And I'm, I'm grateful uh, and, and that our marriage is good and healthy and I'm thankful for that. It takes work uh, for that to be the case, but she can't be my savior. And spouses sometimes fall into adultery out of disappointment, whether they can articulate it this way or not. What's really at work is this disappointment, their spouse isn't their savior, maybe far from it. And so the hope is the other woman or the other man or the other women or men, plural, will be. It's about more than sex. It's about satisfying this inner ache, this inner murmur that I have to have someone who can be enough for me. You only get that in Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. 
that what all human beings crave is, is something to be enough for us. That's what you get in Jesus, why we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, his enoughness. This is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we know something about this. We know that God is not trying to keep something good from us. He works to keep us from that which will take more from us than we want to give it. That which ultimately cannot deliver on its promises, which is the God of will, small g, God, cannot deliver on its promises. So each one of us know how to control our body in holiness and honor. Verse 4, verse 7, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. I've said hypocrisy is the opposite of holiness and sexual immorality is hypocrisy. Uh, Blessing sexual immorality, overlooking it, dismissing it, trying to sanctify it, it's hypocrisy as well as doing it. But let's take another angle on holiness. In sexual immorality, you get involved with somebody else. You're really getting more involved with yourself in a lot of ways, but you, you, you get involved. Holiness is becoming God-involved. Sexual immorality, like few other realities, gets us involved with others in a mutual sin, the give and take. But it's actually an experience very self-involved. And, and, it, and thereby directly contrasts to our calling to walk in holiness. What happens when we subject ourselves to the God of will and give ourselves to sexual immorality is we begin to believe we need it. We may feel guilty about that, but still we justify it. I need this. I just do. I need that sight. I need that other woman or I need that other man. Or I need these places I go on trips, you know, and so on. It's very self-involved. And yet for a, a Christian, one in Christ, everything for us rallies to everything God has promised to be for us in Christ. That's the center. That's the core of our lives. Think of rallying for a moment. Think of how sports teams rally when they get down. The team is behind. The other team has dominated the game thus far. But then the losing team starts to rally. And as they do, they get confident. In baseball dugouts, they turn their hats inside out, you know, and it's the rally cap. And they're not getting arrogant, but their confidence gains. In a real way, in experience, that's what sanctification, this word in verse 3, that's what it's like in actual experience. When we feel beaten down by temptation's pull, we feel uh, just kind of sickened by our own draw to and interest in giving in to sin, we need to rally. But how do we? How do we do that? by way of the victory of Jesus over everything that ever opposed him, including our own sin. We practice resurrection, as someone put it. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We seek out his power, not just to say no to a temptation, but to say yes to the opposite direction that Jesus will send us. We rally to everything God has promised to be for us in our risen Savior, Jesus. And, and you're going to need a team around you 
to rally well. We need others who keep us mindful of the resources we have in Jesus. We need others who say, yes, I realize the difficulty of keeping in step with the Spirit, but I want to help you do that. People who encourage us to subject our needs and our desires to God's formation, to God's reordering and redirecting us. We all have to do this. The great confusion of our, of our time in this area of sexual immorality is there's a difference between being interested, interested in sex and having a need for it. Where sexuality descends into sexual immorality is when it becomes self-involved. I need this. I need this right now more than anything in the world, even God. Or we go right to, um, I need this and I'm going to make God okay with it, which is a much worse place to be. It was a bachelorette season. I don't know. I don't follow the bachelorette, the show, but my college girls were into one of the seasons. I told them what I thought. Didn't do much good. Good luck to you when your kids are older. Maybe you'll do better than me there. Um, I felt like, and they even got Lynn interested in it. And that was like where Paul says in, one, in Acts, you know, they even got Barnabas, you know, to, to go along with this. Uh, but this bachelorette season, you know the show, and there's a lot of shows like it. Um, there was this Alabama girl. If you're fans of the show, maybe you already know who this is. I don't remember the name. I didn't look it up. But I overheard my girls with watching an episode in which this girl was talking about her faith, how important her faith was to her. But then she was doing what the bachelorettes on that show do with different guys, a whole collection of guys. And I said to my girls, is it not obvious to you that she's trying to make God okay with her sin? Oh, Dad, you're so judgy. Well, okay, yeah, maybe I am. Now, The Bachelorette and other shows like it, it's low-hanging fruit when it comes to <laughs> cultural critique, okay? I mean, that's the stupid stuff of our age. I recognize. But instructive nonetheless in that here was a girl from the churched South who knew the language, had the lingo, knew what to say, and no doubt a lot of... Girls and guys watched her and thought, oh, she's a Christian, wonderful. Talked about her faith being important to her, except her faith was really in the God of will. It was not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened to her happens to a lot of young people in particular, and that there are voices out there, and make no mistake, they are discipling voices. It is a kind of discipleship. And they're best-selling authors, and they look good on the covers of their books, and they're small-c Christian bloggers who are working to convince you that you can have anything you want in this life. You can have anything that you think you need, and God's okay with it. He wants us to be happy. That's a total lie. And the lie is not, uh, the, you know, it's, it, God, it's not like God doesn't want us to be happy, he makes us happy in, his, in himself. The, the whole concept of salvation is for God to share his happiness with the world in himself. So it's not that God's against happiness. He isn't. But sexual morality, me concluding that I simply must have what I want 
when I want it with whomever I want it and God will bless that, that is always a shipwreck waiting to happen. And there's just too much of it. Some of the moralistic therapeutic deism that we've exported out of the South to the rest of the world, it just reeks of this. It's a shame. Holiness is becoming God-involved. And when I become God-involved, what I learn is to say no to the passion of lust and where it will take me, to becoming very self-involved, to becoming a worshiper of the God of will. And what happens once you realize that's what's happened to you, there's a particular kind of pain in that and a particular kind of haunting from that. That leaves, that leaves scars. Now, let me ask you, we're drawing this to a conclusion. Has this sermon been moralistic? Have I been preaching at you, making you feel dirty and small? See, I don't think that does any good, and I'm supposed to be in the hope business anyway. Which means what I'm supposed to keep you mindful of, if I'm a gospel preacher, and that's what I hope I am, a gospel preacher in all seasons, all weather radial, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to keep you mindful of the fact that we are great sinners. And I could have proceeded in a shaming way with this kind of message because I already know the sort of guilt burden that we all carry when this is the subject. We're great sinners, it's true, but Jesus is a great redeemer. And we can't hear that enough. And I've seen God redeem the sexually immoral, and I've seen God redeem even sexual immoral situations and bring beauty from the ashes and joy in the place of loss and pain. The reason we say no to sexual immorality is not because we're prudes. And we don't say yes to sexual immorality banking on, well, God forgives and I'll, I'll seek it later. No, that's to make a mockery of God. And God means it. I say this often. He means it when he says he's gracious, but he means it just as much when he says he won't be mocked. Verse 6 ends with, we solemnly warned you that God takes his design purposes seriously and holds us accountable. Solemn is not shaming. Into verse 6. Solemn is meant to keep you from shaming yourself. We say no to sexual immorality because what's central to our needs now is Jesus himself. God says, I made people sexual beings. I made human beings with an interest in and desire for sex, most of us, but I didn't make you to need it. And you will only self-sabotage and put pain in others' lives also when you make this your need, when you buy into the gospel of self-involvement. Sexual liberation is its prophet and priest. It has plenty of temples. We're dealing in our day and time with another gospel. Nothing less than that in sexual liberation. It's another gospel. People think you're not fully human if you're not sexually active. You can't give a reason for marriage-only sex that any Gentile who doesn't know God, to use the term in verse 5, really respects. And even if they do, they still think we're odd. Something's just wrong with you. That hurts. It does. There are contexts in which that can really hurt you. 
It's not pleasant to endure, and single Christians endure it in addition to their own longings for intimacy being delayed. I don't have any easy fix to direct you to. It's a fight. For some, it's a daily fight. But to disregard God's purpose, design, call, as verse 8 says, to disregard it is to give up the fight. It's to stop walking in a way that pleases God. And pleasing God, it's not about preening about in self-righteousness or earning his acceptance or blessing. No, we respond to God's will by rejecting the God of will, self-authority, self-involvement, because we know we make awful gods for ourselves and we make awful gods for others. And because we've been given in Jesus all the benefits of his satisfying the will of God completely flawlessly. Do you know he did that? It was Jesus who said, not my will, but yours be done. For, for our sake, knowing that would take him through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that would put him in the place of mockery and scorn and shame for doing his father's will. But there was glory on the other side. It was Jesus of whom it said he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He felt the pull, but he didn't plunge in. And that's why he, Jesus Christ the righteous, leads many sons and daughters to glory. Sexual immorality promises a counterfeit glory, a momentary glory. It can't deliver. Jesus Christ gives a glory that never fades promises that never lose their value, presence that is uh, an ever-present help and source of hope to us throughout our lives. Be encouraged. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We'll sing. And we'll have our benediction after we sing. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, your graciousness to us. You know this is a particular area of fault and failure, and we all bring some culpability, whether it's in our way past or as present as this morning. Uh, Lord, you know us well. Nothing is hidden before you, and still you welcome us as recipients of your grace, as people that you endeavor to perfect our sanctification which will happen the day that our faith is sight, and we thank you. Until then, Lord, help us fight a good fight. And not to take the kind of posture that's combative, but to uh, rescue those who are drowning in the morass that is our cultural context. To um, gently remind uh, people of our calling when they seem to be going their self-centered way. And Father, that you would, in your own good way and your most effective way, bring people out of darkness into light. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.